Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our little piece of the podcast world. A trip through baseball's past, as far back as the men who played the game in the 1930s, right up to guys who dipped their toes into the 21st century. First, let me thank you for finding us, and if this is your first time listening, I hope you make your way back to some or all of the previous episodes here. If you're back for another go-round, thanks for that, and I hope you can help spread the word to other baseball and history fans that you know. Before we get to today's guest, another one-team Hall of Famer, by the way, just a quick reminder of what hardball hopefully is. These are conversations, a good amount of the older ones done on landline phones with gentlemen who are brought here in the hopes to tell their story of making their way to the major leagues and to fill in some blanks, separate a little fact from fiction, and ultimately pull back the curtain a little bit and let us into a world that most of us only saw on a TV growing up, or if you're like me, the rare occasional game in person as a kid. You will hear at times, I mean actually hear it in almost every episode, the time when our guest reflects on something perhaps not thought of in many years, the excitement that centers around speaking of a game or a moment, and most often talking about relationships with a teammate, a manager, or even an opponent. You will definitely hear some of that today. Jim Palmer was in my childhood fandom wheelhouse. Living in a New York Met house, and 1969 being the first memory of the game that I have, it extended into the 70s as conversations included the Palmer vs. Seaver debate, by the way, both won three Cy Young Awards and finished in the top five eight times. And how the A's team of the early 70s blocked the Orioles from the talk of a dynasty. And how the Yankees of the mid to late 70s made the American League must-see TV. And how the 79 World Series versus the Pirates was incredible drama and brought an energy to the game that was palpable. Oh, and before any of that, he's got a life story to tell before his arrival in Baltimore. He is a man who knows he was very fortunate that his life took a turn that impacted and molded him when he was literally just two years old, and how at nine his life took another turn that would change the course of his future. And there's a car accident at 17 that could have derailed everything. How good an athlete was Jim Palmer? Let's just say you will hear about other choices presented to him before he signed his Oriole contract, and who he said no to in the world of college basketball. We will talk about his first win, and you might be surprised the circumstances of his last. You will hear some of the numbers, but know that he basically bookended his career with a World Series title in 1966, and then as it was winding down in 1983, with the 1970 ring in there as well. We will speak of 1969, as the better team on paper didn't beat the Mets. How he was available for anyone in baseball to steal for $15,000 very early in his career, almost two seasons away because of injuries and a bounce back not often seen when a pitcher has the type of arm problem he did. Other milestones in his place in World Series history are touched on as well. And of course, he will talk about his relationship with fellow Hall of Famer Earl Weaver, 
and it's pretty fascinating. A 20-game winner eight times. I hope you heard the three exclamation points at the end of that. 211 complete games, 53 shutouts. I swear, that's a real number, and an eye-popping 638 win percentage. Full disclosure, I'm trying to catch up with Jim as we speak to follow up on some stories that I would love to discuss with him and to get the perspective on how the now 74-year-old who has stayed in the game as an Orioles broadcaster and has seen the game change dramatically over the years. If and when that happens, I will add it to this episode, Jim Palmer Part 2. I hope you and your families are well and look forward to putting together with the help, as always, the man behind the scenes, Keith DiPolito, the guy whose ear and technical abilities provide the opening and close, which help fill in the blanks and set the tone for these things. Another episode coming soon. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you can, if you listen on Apple, and appreciate you being a part of this and helping spread the word of hardball. For your consideration, James Alvin Palmer. Baltimore takes the field for the Dodger half of the inning. The 20-year-old Palmer seems calm enough as he warms up for his first World Series appearance. Jim pitches to Will, and the first ball is hit right back at him. The youngster knocks it down and throws Laurie out. Now Palmer is only one out away from a shutout victory with Roseborough, the hitter. Palmer's fastball crackles again, and Roseborough pops up behind short. Palmer's triumph made history because at nine days short of his 21st birthday, He's the youngest pitcher ever to achieve a shutout in a World Series. Here's Earl Weaver bouncing out of the Orioles dugout, headed for the mound. Now you have to know Palmer wants to finish this game. Caught by Belanger, and the game in. Handle hit uh, right off the end of the bat. Warren right to Mark Belanger. Rickard comes in, makes one pitch, and wraps up game one of the 1970 World Series. Speaking tonight on Hardball's Legends of the Game, we are joined by the winningest pitcher in Baltimore Orioles history, First-time ballot Hall of Famer, 92.5% of the vote, by the way. 411 of 444 ballots cast. He joins us, Mr. Jim Palmer, this evening. Jim, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine, thanks. And you? We appreciate it. Thank you very well. I, I'm doing well, thanks. Now, I just mentioned that 92.5%. Did you much care about that number or what that number was eventually going to be when you became eligible? I really never thought about it. I, uh, uh, you know, I was told by all the so-called baseball experts that I would get in on the first ballot. But uh, I don't think anybody would ever really anticipate that when you can, I mean, look at the annals of, of the voting of, mm-hmm. of the Hall of Fame and the people that are in there, that, you know, there have been a lot of great players that haven't gotten in the first year. And so I was pleasantly surprised. I guess the irony of the, that story is I had a friend who was in the restaurant business in Baltimore, and he had suggested that we, you know, just have a, you know, I have some friends and, and mutual friends that come over to his restaurant, and uh, we'll wait to be called by Jack Lang. And, Jack Lang was the, at the time was the president of the Baseball Writers Association. Said, "I'll call you around seven o'clock if um, if uh, you're, you've gotten in." And so you know we're all over the Orchard Inn, and my friend Hirsch Pacino is. We're waiting and we're waiting, and finally about quarter to nine, I looked at him. I said, "Doesn't things don't look particularly good?" And I had also said I didn't think this was a very good idea because I said, "What happens if I don't get in?" He said, "Well, we'll do it again next year." And I said, well, that could, you know, this could be pretty redundant because you just don't know about these things. So anyway, at uh, quarter to nine, I got a call from Jack Lang, and uh, you know, he said, um, well, the bad news is, you know, 33 guys didn't vote for you, and the good news, 411 did. And they had been trying to call uh, a crab house uh, that is closed in the winter. They had gotten the wrong information on what restaurant I was in. So 
I kind of uh, learned that I got in the Hall of Fame about two hours later than I really did. Now, did you were you really looking at your watch, 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.15, 8.45, saying, well, good Lord, this might not go my way? Well, I yeah, I definitely thought that. And <laughs> uh, I had no idea that Jack Lang had, uh, had been told that... Uh, that uh, you know, I was having uh, dinner at a at a crab house when I really was having dinner at the, at the Orchard Inn. What I about had crabs? But not not in the middle of the winter. <laughs> what about the uh, what about the guests sitting around the table? I mean, uh, well, actually, it was a stand up buffet party, and uh, you know, it was just a lot of the acquaintances that I had uh, met. You know, in the, in the over twenty five, I guess thirty years of people that I had met in Baltimore because I got to Baltimore in nineteen sixty five, and um, I think they were having a good time. They figured, well, you know what, we're having a good time this year. We can do it again next year. <laughs> Now, Jim, you talked about coming up in 1965. Where, where did you actually grow up? Well, I was born in New York, and then uh, I was adopted at birth, and my dad uh, dad passed away when I was 10 years old uh, with heart uh, complications, and we moved out to uh, Whittier, California for a year, uh, and then three years in Beverly Hills for 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th grade, and then after my 8th grade uh, year at at Horseman Elementary, my parents went over. We had gone over the previous uh, Easter to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and my mother loved it. She was an avid golfer and had a little bit of arthritis. And, and now, Los Angeles can be a beautiful place to live um, if you don't, you know don't have any earthquakes and things like that. But it can be a little damp, and she just loved Arizona. So we ended up going over there for my freshman year of high school, and I couldn't quite understand why we were moving to some place where it was 110 degrees in the middle of the summer. But uh, Arizona back then, then was a lovely place. Uh, you know, I mean, still a lot of people love it. But back then, not a lot of traffic, no smog, no high-rises, uh, and not much humidity because there weren't really a whole lot of people there. And that's where I went to high school and ended up uh, playing high school baseball and Babe Ruth and American Legion and eventually signing uh, with the Orioles when I was 17. Were you one of those guys who you really thought at an early age baseball is what I want to do? Not really. I think um, I, I'm probably like most kids uh, are that when you're coming up uh, through grade school and high school and junior high and so forth, you're you're pretty much uh, kind of a, you know a man for all seasons. Uh, basketball season, I played basketball. I led the state in scoring in my senior year, and uh, had a chance to go to UCLA and a lot of other uh, schools to play basketball. And then uh, I have a friend who's now published for the Seattle Times, Frank Blethen. And uh, when I came back from the Babe Ruth finals in Hawaii, when I was, I guess, 15. We needed a, 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 a you know, a wide out, somebody that could catch passes and play defensive halfback and run back kicks and punt, and et cetera. And I was the best athlete uh, in our class. And uh, But the scouts had told me that, at least told my parents, that don't whatever you do, don't let your son play football because he's going to be a major league pitcher. But we went over and talked my mother into allowing him to play, and I was an all-state end and you know, caught about 60-some passes two years in a row and made all-state a couple of years. So had a lot of options. Could have played college football. But I um, I probably enjoyed basketball the most because it it, uh, it it didn't quite come as natural, and I think you had to work a little bit harder uh, you know, at all facets of the game where I could always hit and I could always uh, throw. I had you know exceptional arm and uh, not much of an idea where the ball was going from time to time. But uh, baseball probably came a little bit easier than the other sports. So you actually said no to John Wooden. Well, I, I'm not sure. I, I just told him that I was going to decline. And uh, when I got out of high school, it was actually the collusion of the 60s was they did not want to give up any more big bonuses. So instead of having a 40-man roster with 25 on your major league roster and 15 through the minor leagues, uh, back then you only had a chance to protect one player. 
uh, the Dodgers wanted me to actually to uh, go to Southern California for a year and then sign with them the following year. They had already signed Jeff Torborg out of Rutgers. So um, the situation was where I went away to a college league. I was the only high school player in the league with about five guys from Arizona State. Um, ended up uh, pitching very well at, at 17, the only high school player in that league up in South Dakota. And Merv Rettman and uh, Jim Longboard, Carl Morton, Bobby Floyd, uh, uh, those four guys went from this team right to the major leagues at, at, you know, in the near future. So we had a very good ball club, and I guess at 17, with most of the other kids 19 and 20 years old, I was very impressive. So when I came back, I ended up signing with the Orioles. Were the Orioles one of the few teams that saw you up there? Because, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys who played in your era. You would think, or signed certainly at the time you were signed, there might be crevices that people could fall through, but it really is amazing. They do find you, even back then. Well, they find you, but uh, the Orioles were actually, they sponsored the team in Winter, South Dakota that I played for. and um, We raced back. Uh, Houston was very interested. Paul Richards had been with the Orioles and was, uh, you know, a, a big advocate of trying to get young pitching and, and develop it. He'd done that with the Orioles. And um, we came, when, you're, when you're in Winter, South Dakota for two months, you, you don't want to be there any longer. People are wonderful, but there's not a lot to do. I'd never really been... Uh, uh, away from home extensively for, for as long as I was that summer. So the five of us uh, actually jumped in two cars, and we had come all night long from losing in the playoffs and picked up our clothes and our paychecks. I, mean, I think the difference between staying another week in winter South Dakota was uh, the difference between four cents a mile home and nine cents a mile home. And most of the guys uh, didn't really care about that extra nickel uh, a mile for the way home, and we jumped in our cars, and on the way back, actually, uh, Louis Lagunas, who'd been an All-American second baseman, had uh, he fell asleep uh, at four corners in my my dad's car, and we ended up having an auto accident, totaled the car. Uh, I hurt my knee. He scratched his arm, and I ended up signing with the Orioles that afternoon. And the next day, about 12 teams called. Uh, apparently, I'd had, you know, I'd had a very good year that that year in the Basin League, uh, being the only high school player in that league. But um, you know. You know Looking back at that particular uh, situation in my life, number one, we were able to survive the, you know, demolishing a car, rolling it three times. And the second thing was that the best thing that ever happened to me was signing with the Orioles. And if you're a fatalist, you certainly, this many years later, can actually make that statement. Now, you signed in 63. You're brought up in 66. You're still a, a very young guy. You end up with 15 wins. But a part of the story that a lot of people might not know, and, and obviously the World Series, you go head-to-head with Sandy Koufax in that game, and I believe, were you not the youngest pitcher? Complete game shutout in the World Series? Um, yes. Uh, Fernando Valenzuela would have been younger, but he did not pitch a shutout. Mm-hmm. When he, he pitched in the 1981 World Series. But as to this date, I've been, you know, I'm the youngest pitcher to ever pitch a shutout in the World Series. And I guess the irony is that's the first shutout I ever pitched. Um, were you nervous? I mean, you're going against well, Sandy Koufax. I, I think what happened is it's your first World Series. That, um, I watched the first ball game. Uh, Dave McNally started and struggled. Mojabrowski came in and struck out 11 Dodgers in six and two-thirds innings. Brooks and Frank Robinson hit home runs in the first inning. Uh, Koufax couldn't pitch because uh, he had pitched the final weekend uh, to, to get them into the World Series. And um, I think about the only thing I really didn't want to do, I had had some arm problems. I had bicepital tendonitis, uh, even though I don't think it was identified as that. that at that point I had rested a couple of weeks. So I was well-rested. I had pitched 208 innings that year, which was more than I'd ever pitched because it was only really my second uh, second year in the major leagues. I had come up in 65 and was just kind of a, uh, a spot starter bullpen guy at 19. And, you know, everybody got hurt. I had a chance to pitch at 20, and I just didn't want to embarrass myself. And as it turned out, uh, we got a couple of defensive breaks. Willie Davis dropped a couple of balls, picked up.
hard-earned runs and eventually went on to win six to nothing. So, but I think I look back, I look back at the two home runs by Brooks and Franks back to back off Don Drysdale, and I think it, it kind of made us believe that we had a chance to win. And then I think if you're 20 years old and you're bright and um, somewhat intelligent, you sit on the bench and watch Mojabowski throw high fastballs by uh, the Dodgers, which is what he did in that opener. Uh, and you're paying attention, uh, you're going to try to do that the next day. And it was one of those days where I just had great command of my curveball and fastball. And, uh, and at that point, all I needed pretty much was a fastball. So I threw exceptionally hard. And I was able to get the ball over, get it in the strike zone, and the Dodgers, um, they just didn't hit in that series. And one of the things I think that's not known, you mentioned the 208 innings, and we'll talk about an injury that you suffered. You spent the next two years kind of up and down in the minor leagues because you need surgery, but you were actually put on waivers, and nobody laid a claim even after you win 15 games in 1966. Why do you think that is? Why do you think anybody took a flyer on you even at that point? Well, it was a year of the expansion draft, and uh, that was 68 going into 69 in Kansas City. And uh, Kansas City was one of the American League ball clubs. And in fact, I had gone to the instructional league. I had found out what the problem was my arm was. But I, when you tear part of your rotator cuff, which I had, I had bicephal tendonitis, which led to the torn rotator cuff. Um, uh, you know, I would, you would think for $25,000 or maybe $15,000 back then, somebody would have, because uh, I was not even on the major league roster. Mm-hmm. Um, the expansion draft was $175,000, and apparently, uh, you know, nobody thought that I was really the worth uh, worth that kind of money. But now, as it turned out, uh, you know, I went to the instructional league, uh, did not pitch very well because I had rehabbed my arm. But I went home, and a friend of mine, a pharmaceutical uh, rep, said, "Have you ever tried this anti-inflammatory pill called Endosin?" I took that. Went down to Puerto Rico two days later. Um, my fastball went from about 80 miles per hour to about 95 or six again. I went six and zero. Went next year. Went sixteen and four. Won twenty games eight out of the next nine years, and continued to take an Edison um, through the course of my career because it just took away all the inflammation um, from uh, the, the tendonitis and uh, really, I guess, any kind of damage that I had done tearing my rotator cuff after the rehab. So, uh, in a matter of two days, I went from thinking that I was going to go back to school to being a viable candidate to make the Orioles. And as it turned out, I. Now, Jim, you take that pill, and I'm not kidding. You're telling me it's two days later. Were you shocked? I mean, did your jaw drop when you went to throw and you said, I, I got 14 or 15 miles an hour on this thing, and I can't explain it? Well, it was interesting because I pitched on Monday, and I pitched against the Pittsburgh Ball Club in the instruction league and gave up 10 runs and 14 hits. Terry Crowley, who you know, a longtime major mm-hmm. leaguer, great pinch hitter, who's now the batting instructor for the Orioles, was playing left field, and I was running him to death. And, when I went back to Baltimore, I literally thought my career was over, and George Bamberger, uh, the pitching coach, said, hey, just give it one more month, go down to Puerto Rico. And I and I can still remember saying to him, I said, George, they have like real hitters down there. They have major league players. And he said, no, just give it another month, and if you, you know, if your arm doesn't come around, um, you know, you'll you'll look for something else to do. Well, uh, he went down to Puerto Rico on, on, later in the week uh, when I arrived, and he was there on Friday afternoon. I got in on Thursday afternoon, and we had a rain out, but like you know, in, in Puerto Rico, it can rain five, six inches, and then all of a sudden the sun can come out. So they took the tarp off, and Jim Harden, who had won 18 games for the Orioles, he was going to do a little throwing. So he threw, and then it was my turn. Ruben Gomez, for a long-time uh, giant pitcher, was there. He played for the Santorsi Ball Club, and I started throwing, and it was like somebody gave me a new arm. You know, and Ruben's saying, well, you know, you need to use your wrist a little bit more, and George looked at him and said, wait a minute, that's the best you've thrown since you hurt your shoulder. As it turned out, um, that was my ticket back to the major leagues. And 
you know, I won, I think, 240-some games after the injury to my shoulder, so I was very fortunate. And when you're talking about surgery back in the uh, mid to late 60s, you're not talking about what they're doing today. Well, so I really never had surgery. I, oh, you, you didn't? Know, I, I think uh, if I had had to have something done to my rotator cuff, which you look at Wayne Garland, mm-hmm. a bonus kid from Baltimore that went over to uh, as a free agent to Cleveland, um, they just did not have the sophistication from a sports medicine standpoint than they have now. So uh, I'm sure my career probably would have been over. And, Jim, one of the things, again, we talk about missing that time that you missed in the late 60s, 74, I think you missed about eight or nine weeks as well. You end up with 268 wins, a phenomenal amount, but the thought of 300, did it did it bother you not to get to it? Did you know that if you had had that time in Major League uniforms, you probably would have gotten to it? Is Are you okay with that even this much after the fact? Oh, yeah. I You know, I... I think one of the things as a broadcaster, you, you never want to forget how difficult the uh, the game really is because it looks a lot easier on television, and especially when you're sitting up in the booth. And another thing is, is that um, I think that the arm injury that I sustained um, made everything that I was able to accomplish and be part of. Uh, again, you know, playing on some great Oriole teams, I think it made it um, that much better. Uh, you know, I often wondered, uh, and you know, I'm not one of these people that just sits back because I know that. I did just about everything to get my arm well. It just took a little bit longer than I wanted, and certainly the Orioles and some of my managers and pitching coaches. But um, I did just about everything you could to be as highly conditioned as I could be. You know, I I certainly, I think, maybe would have liked to have lived in this era where you have your own strength uh, coach and you have plyometrics and you have uh, more sophisticated ways of of, of actually training your body. But... um, I know that my career could have been over at age 22 and to pitch to your 38 and win all those games and be in World Series and playoffs and go to Japan and do a lot of things uh, that I was very blessed. I was blessed because, you know, I was adopted and I had terrific parents. I was blessed because I signed with the Orioles. And, um, you know, I was blessed because I was surrounded by players that allowed me to get to the Hall of Fame. So I guess in a perfect world I would have won 300 games, but uh, I think I maximized about what I could do as a pitcher and for some, arm injury. Yeah, and for some guys, I guess it is a number. Obviously, it's a it's a number that people will try to measure people against, but there are extenuating circumstances as to why people do it, don't do it, and you have to be around long enough to have the conversation even exist. Now, I asked you if you were nervous in that 66 World Series. Ever nervous as a pitcher? Yeah, I think probably the most nervous I ever was was that uh, last game of 82 when you know we had caught the, the Brewers and you know, to, to go to the, to the playoffs, we had to win on that final Sunday, and we scored a bunch of runs, and I and I knew the Brewers had a very good team. I beat them the week before 7-2 to up in Milwaukee, but I got seven runs and pitched against Don Sutton, and, uh, you know, I threw three solo home runs. Didn't really give up a lot of runs, but we didn't score much. And, you know, a couple of base running misplays, and et cetera, and et cetera. And uh, it would have been nice uh, because I think it would have been just nice with Earl Weavers last year. Um, as an official manager, he came back and tried to manage mm-hmm. two more years. But with the nucleus of players, to make a tremendous stretch run to catch the Brewers on the on the, on the final uh, Saturday night of the season and then not be able to win on Sunday, um, I had trouble trouble getting my breath because I knew it was such an important game, not only for my teammates but also for all the people that supported the Orioles. And uh, it was a big game. And I and also it was one of those things where you'd pitched in the rain, you'd pitched every fourth day, you're uh, thirty you know thirty six years old and you're not at the height of your physical skills. So, um, uh, you know, I just wasn't able. I mean, didn't, again, I didn't pitch poorly and have huge innings. I threw three solo home runs, which usually don't beat you. But it certainly does if the guy pitching against you is ending up 
on his way to the Hall of Fame and pitches a little bit better, and that's what Don Sutton did. Now, is it strange, ironic, I don't know what the proper word is, but your last win comes in relief. I don't know how many times you did that, but I don't know if a lot of people will know your last Major League win does come as you relieve from Mike Flanagan, I believe, in a World Series game. Well, yeah, it was it was 1983, the last year the Orioles were in the World Series. and um, You know, it's an interesting, I think, uh, you get an interesting insight where you um, you play in six World Series and your last one is where you're not really in a as 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 a responsible position as you were in the other ones as a starting pitcher and uh, you know I sat out in the bullpen in, in Baltimore and Philadelphia and you know once again I said well you know I'm, I'm pretty fortunate here I am uh, you know I won 15 games a year before and I'd had a little bit of back problems because kind of a freak injury and I had tried to rehab it and I had you know come back and thrown 138 pitches in my first start back which was an exceptionally high pitch and had some shoulder problems from that, and I'd gone to the minor leagues to, to pitch to make sure that I could be on the roster. So sitting there, I thought I was pretty fortunate. And to come into a World Series game on your birthday, it was my 37th birthday, and be able to uh, win, whether, you, you know, I didn't, certainly didn't dominate anybody. I pitched two innings and was able to get the Phillies out. And the ball went through Yvonne uh, Davis' legs, and we ended up winning 3-2. to two. But, um, you know, I think you just sit out there and you realize how fortunate it is, and, and I think you also realize that uh, when you've played as long as I had and you've had a chance to have a starring role, sometimes you have to sit back and, and uh, you know, be a character actor or just have a little bit of a bit role in the production that's going on. And, you know, it was a very exciting time for all the Oriole fans. Uh, you know, we had a lot of young players on that ball club, Mike Flanagan and Scotty Brogager, Mike Boddicker, young pitchers that I had helped come along, Storm Davis. So um, I was able to help them, and they were able to maybe shoulder more of the responsibility, pretty much what I had done early on. And I think that's what teamwork's all about. So it was an exciting moment. We're talking to Jim Palmer tonight in the Legends of the Game segment of Budweiser's Hardball. Now, Jim, I spoke to Ron Santo yesterday, and he swears the Cubs were the best team in the National League in 69. Uh, will you take it a step further? Were the Orioles the best team in all of baseball in 69? Well, yeah, except that we got beat by another team, the Mets. and. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think over 162 games, we would have been a better ball club, but uh, they had awfully good pitching. And when you get in a short series where you get the breaks, whether it's umpire calls or you get momentum, which is certainly what the Mets did. I, you know, we beat Seaver in the opener. We hit rockets all over the ballpark. And uh, Kuzman beat Cuellar 2-1 to one in the second game. And was there a feeling, Jim, by the way, in the clubhouse that after that game, hey, we just beat Seaver, we, we knocked him around, and, and come on, this is a fait accompli? I don't believe so. Uh, you know, we went out and just hit bullets all over the ballpark and the Mets played defense as well they had a little bit of luck Kuzman pitched very well you know and then I pitched against Jerry Gentry who pitched the game of his uh, Gentry pitching, pitching the game of his life in game three we didn't get any runs uh, you know I gave up three and, and uh, things just happened and then you know then you go um, you know you're in New York and uh, you know they're playing well they're getting the breaks I mean there was the Cleon Jones ball in the dugout there was the shoot interference by J.C. Martin yeah. never gets thrown out um, Ron Svoboda makes one of the I great catches. I realize that you know maybe this is not the year you're going to win the World <laughs> Series, but it certainly doesn't mean that you don't think you're going to win. I think when I look at that ball club, that we could have won, uh, uh, you know, 109 wins. Uh, we could have won any time. And you do come back the next year. So you know, it's one of those situations where you just think that you know you come back and you'll win. It's just unfortunately uh, we proved the next year by winning a world mm-hmm. championship that we had a very good ball club. As we finish up with Jim Palmer, Jim, you mentioned some of your teammates and some of the guys that helped any pitcher get to the Hall of Fame. You you had you had some of the best. I mean, I think Frank Robinson, for whatever it's worth, uh, I don't necessarily believe in some of the politics 
that he's representing in Major League Baseball's front office right now, but he might be one of the most forgotten guys when it comes to listing the all-time greats. Well, I think anybody that saw Frank Robinson play um, knows what kind of hitter he was. Um, you know, I honestly believe if you put him in modern baseball, um, he would have hit more than 70 home runs. Um, he could hit him out anywhere. Um, a triple crown winner, mm-hmm. most valuable player in both leagues. Um, he was just an amazing hitter. Um, you know, he couldn't fool him. Uh, he couldn't throw the fastball by him. And I guess the irony comes over and first spring training game, I, it was an inter-squad game, and he hits a curveball. I mean, we had a young pitcher by the name of Steve Cosgrove, a bonus kid we had, we had drafted out of the Braves organization, and he had a fabulous storm. And he throws Frank a low and away curveball, and Frank hits it off the chalk line with one hand. He's a 36-ounce bat on our 161, and I said, you know, I turned to the guy next to me, and I said, I think we just won the pennant. So he had 49 home runs during the year. That's when 49 home runs meant something. Um, and he also hit two in the World Series. And the next year he was off to a better start when he hit the collision with Al Weiss mm-hmm. of the White Sox. Or I think that he might have, you know, hit 55, 60 home runs that year. I mean, he was that good. Um, you, you just you just couldn't pitch him. I mean, I saw him hit low and away sliders from Dean Chance, who had won the Cy Young Award the year before with 12 shutouts, um, into the bullpen, you know, 400 feet. Uh, he was just an incredible player. And um, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, a lot of times a lot of teams think that you're only one player away. And when you look back at the Orioles in 65, we were only one player away. And his name it was? It just took a guy like Frank yeah. Robinson to be that one player. And, Jim, a couple other things for you real quick. Was there a guy that, you know, people talk and use the expression, uh, he owned you, you owned him. Was there a guy who you just had an easier time than you were supposed to when you consider his talents? And was there a guy who beat you up maybe more than anybody else? Well, Rod Carew probably got the most hits, but they were usually singles and didn't mean a whole lot. I think the guy that had probably hit the home runs, uh, both Greg Nettles and, and, and Jim Rice had 10 home runs. Rice had nine solos, 216, I think, career off me. That's because we're good friends, and I constantly remind them, yes, you hit 10 home runs, but they were only, you only hit 216. That's not going to get you into the Hall of Fame. I think he was a 298 lifetime hitter. Um, but Greg Nettles had three-run home runs when I didn't want him to. And I think the guy that I look back, I mean, I pitched against Mays and Aaron, but only in the All-Star games, and then Clemente in the World Series. Clemente probably would have been the toughest out because he could hit any pitch, and, and if you got him out one way, you could never really do it again because he was too good a hitter, and he could hit with power the opposite field, and if you came inside, he could pull the ball, and he could beat you with his arm and his glove. You know, I didn't have a chance to really play against Willie Mays. And of course, anybody that hit 660 home runs, I, I assume, is doing the same thing as, as Clemente did. But Roberto Clemente, I, I mean, he was, he would, you know, a tragic death in 1972, but he would have been probably the toughest out for somebody like me. And, Jim, as we finish up, and again, we do appreciate your time tonight. Anything you talked about being fortunate, especially when you talk about what happened early in your career and you're not really sure if there's going to be a long term to your career, anything that you missed, didn't do, Anything that you look back and say, boy, I wish I could have or would have? And Not really. I mean, I think, you know, I picked the right ball club. Um, you know, I suppose I could have been a little more mellow. But uh, I think that I had a lot to do with my manager. And, and uh, you know, I always wonder. I mean, Earl Weaver, I, when I got in the Hall of Fame, you know, he was uh, very instrumental in giving me the responsibility to win and lose ball games. But I think it would have been nicer to have a manager that might have um, uh, been able to and, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way. I think Earl just felt that he could not really be your friend um, while he managed because it would make it a little more difficult to, to do the things that he really needed to do. So, but was that good for you? I mean, oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. But at the time, I'm not sure I recognized that. So, um, but I think 
um, it would have been nice. I still remember doing the last game of 1987, and uh, uh, Jimmy Key beats, uh, you know, ends up uh, losing actually uh, uh, to uh, Frank Tanana. Uh, they, he loses one nothing as the Tigers beat the uh, Toronto Blue Jays to, to go to the playoffs and eventually uh, win the World Series. And, um, after the final out, where Tanana beats uh, Toronto one nothing, Sparky Anderson runs out and jumps up and gives. Frank and I had a big hug and a kiss, and I'm thinking, what if Weaver had done that to me? And then Tim McCarver next to me said, don't worry, that would never have happened. Earl was too short. So <laughs> um, so I guess maybe it just would have been nice to have a nice, more respectful relationship both ways. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that I was, I could have been a nicer person when it comes to uh, treating Earl Weaver the way I treated him, and, and that probably goes both ways. But uh, things turned out pretty well, so I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Well, yeah, 268, 152, 286 ERA, and... Uh... As we said, first-time ballot Hall of Famer, I'd say things worked out pretty well. World Series rings to show for it as well. And I guess the only other thing that really didn't work for the American League was the All-Star game for a period of time when you were actually playing. Yeah, we just had trouble. Uh, you know, there was a tremendous amount of pride, and um, we just could not get it done. I, you know, I was picked six times. I guess the irony is, two of the three years I won the Cy Young Award, I didn't even get picked to the All-Star team. So it was a little frustrating, but, uh, you know, it's a very important game. It still is, and I was out in Seattle this year, and, you know, I had a trip perfect time. Uh, again, my uh, friend uh, Frank Buffman, the publisher, has first row seats, so I was about 40 feet away from Cal Ripken when he hit that home runoff of Chan Ho Park. So it was a, it was a, it's a very very special moment. I think uh, the All-Star game, um, probably at least in my mind, and I'm probably a little biased, is, is the still the, the only legitimate uh, game where it's not tricked up like hockey and basketball and football where they don't play defense and whatever. But well, you, you brought this up. i got to ask. You're 40 feet away, and the conspiracy theorists came out in droves. Chanhole Park, Cal Ripken, oh, yeah. he hits the home run. And I, I, It might be a stupid question, but did you ever find yourself? Well, first of all, do you believe that to be a fact or not? Not really. And okay. you know, I, I rode back to Atlanta the next day with Chipper Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was going back to home, and I was going through Atlanta to Baltimore. And, you know, he said, that was just amazing. He said, you know, it was awesome. He said, because he said, and I was sitting there. You couldn't see. He said, even if Chan Ho Park told you it was coming down right. the middle, you couldn't see it. So, you know, it's just another situation where Cal has stepped uh, stepped up to on top of the uh, steps. And uh, when, you know, in a big moment, something we've seen and we'll see the next couple of months. And um, yeah, it was a, it was it was it was great for baseball. And uh, again, it was I was very happy that I had a chance to go. I well, haven't gone to too many All Star games when I haven't played, and that certainly was a big thrill. Here's the follow up for you, though. Did you ever find yourself in a position where you thought, wink, wink, nod, nod? Older player, younger player, here it comes. No, you know, somebody asked me if I was uh, able to throw the, you know, 715th home run to Babe Ruth or to uh, Hank Aaron, would I have done it? And I said, you know, how would you ever know? He already hit 714 before right. then. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm sure Chan Park was trying to make a good pitch with his fastball. It ran in the middle at 93 miles per hour. And Cal, who had not hit well, uh, mm-hmm. particularly well, all of a sudden, you know, since he's announced his retirement. And he's awake. Yeah, he's very much away. Well, Jim, listen, I appreciate your time. It was a hell of a run, hell of a career. I know you're still doing work, obviously, with the Orioles, and uh, good luck with that, and we do appreciate your time. Okay, We've been trying welcome. to get a hold of you for a couple of years, and we're glad we actually have you in the Legends of the Game segment. Okay, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Jim. Have a okay. great day. Bye. Bye. My biggest fear, my biggest apprehension is that the standards of baseball will lessen, and um, not because of the fact that the players aren't as good as they used to be. It's because maybe of the salaries. And what motivated Jim Palmer... And I'm not putting down money. I'd like to, I'd be like, I mean, I, there's not one guy back here that wouldn't like to be making $3 million a year for doing what they did. But that's not why they did it. 
The reason I tried to be as good as I was is because of what these gentlemen behind me were able to do. I mean, the fact that Warren Spahn won 363 games. I wasn't left-handed, so I, I was going to be another Bob Feller or a Bob Lemon, or I was going to be another Don Drysdale who's not able to be with us. And that's what baseball's all about, to grow up as a kid in New York, being a Yankee fan, which proves nobody's perfect. <laughs> To dream about pitching against Mickey Mantle or Roger Maris, guys that I did have a chance to pitch against, and then to eventually be one of them really makes me feel something that I never thought I'd get in touch with, that, that you are part of a special fraternity. And what seemed to be most poignant last night was not the fact that these guys had a lifetime batting average of 331, but that they cared so much about themselves. Thank you very much. I always felt the formula for, for Jim Palmer was, I will do my job and uh, the Orioles will do theirs, and they did. I never was really enamored with strikeouts unless you had a guy on third base with less than two outs, and then I, I wanted to strike somebody out. Uh, it's not a put down of anybody, but it's just not the way the Orioles taught baseball. Oh, real baseball. It's Baltimore, it's being there, it's everyone, yeah, having fun together. Earl Weaver's theory was, was very basic. He said, let's win today and worry about tomorrow. We had our differences. I was 6'4", he was 5'6". And that wouldn't have been a problem, except that every time he wanted to take me out, he wanted to come to the highest point of the mound, and I never would let him. Um, but the truest test of a pitcher is to try to get a good hitter out the fourth time. You don't have to do that anymore, and that's not to downgrade any of the starters now. I think one of the reasons I'm in the Hall of Fame is that Earl had enough confidence in me. He felt that I was better than anybody in the bullpen to give me the ball when the ninth inning started. And that's how you complete games. That's how you win a lot of games. Maybe that's how you win 20 games eight times. More than rice, more than hits, more than a moment's pain. More than wins, more than losses, more than just a game. Oh, oh, real baseball is everyone having fun, being one together.